everyone, and welcome back to the Overmanga Cast. My name is Sam, and uh, this week, well, we're short a Matt and a Jay because of uh, reasons. And so Jacob and I have decided to just do the usual over-echo chamber thing of being degenerates. Right, Jake? Oh, I am so sorry yet again for subjecting <laughs> you to this, but you did click onto this, so no pity for self-inflicted wounds. Yes, we're here to have a very scholarly and in-depth discussion about important matters in the space, such as, in this case, fan service. Degeneracy, I hate it at all times categorically. All right, and thank you everyone once again for tuning into the Overmanka cast. As always, you can find us on all your social medias. <laughs> okay, fine. Perhaps I have a slightly more subtle view on the subject than that. <laughs> slightly. So, slightly. Okay, so we are going to be talking about fan service, um, but I think it's important that we start off by defining our topic here. So, what is fan service? Now, uh, for you, dear listener, you're probably immediately thinking of that kind. Yes, the thing where you lock your door before you turn on a certain episode of your favorite anime. The thing with the, the bounce and boobs and the shaking butts and all that. Uh, but uh, fan service has a lot of different kinds. Uh, there's also a particular kind of fan service that is a more literal use of the the word, where it's a reference of something that the fans are presumed to care about. Basically, a wink at the audience, a isn't this a thing you like kind of moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so for our purposes here, we're kind of dividing it into two subcategories. We've got sexy fan service of you know attractive bodies and tight clothing most often of the female persuasion but it's not unknown to have a fan service steered towards um straight women and gay bisexual men sort of thing's been getting better recently thank you things like eden zero for example mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yes 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 the the beefcake and the uh, other cake on display in that manga is great <laughs> um but when we're talking about fan service, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about, you know, abs and boobs and butts. Uh, when we're talking about fan service, you know, for the fans, uh, we're talking about things like, this is a bad example, but just off the top of my head, I'm thinking about like DMC Devil May Cry when El Dante gets the, the mop that falls on the top of his head and looks like, uh, OG Dante's hair. Well, yeah, actually, I think that's a pretty decent example because the the big thing for this kind of fan service is it's a moment in a story that really only has meta contextual value. It's mm. literally directed at the audience. It's it's diegetic, but it's not for any of the characters. It doesn't mean anything. I mean, it might mean something to the characters, but it doesn't mean uh, to the characters as much as it might to the audience. It's uh, usually some kind of reference to some other piece of media or continuity that is presumed to be beloved by the fans. And that's the sort of the gray area, because there are perfectly valid in-universe reasons to have both versions of fan service. Uh, sexy fan service can make sense because, well, your characters are presumably warm-blooded humans. They might be asexual and not care about that sort of thing, and that can even lead into um, 
its own sort of character building moment of, you know, they experience a very sexual situation and they don't care. Or your character can be Zed sexual, I think it is. The the opposite of ace. Yeah. <laughs> I forget I forget what the word is, but you know what I'm, I'm getting at. I'm I'm pretty sure it is Zed sexual. But basically, you know, your character encounters something that they're attracted to and they respond to it. Th- that has a certain context to it to, uh, from like a doyalist perspective, I think is the term for out of universe, where um, or I think that's Watsonian. I don't know. <laughs> I'm, I'm, mixing <laughs> up my, I'm mixing up my academic terms. But for better or for worse, uh, sexy fan service in that regard has a sort of immersion breaking aspect to it. Well, one yeah, way or another. There is a value to sexy fan service. It makes the blow parts get all tingly. <laughs> it's there to sell. <laughs> you know, I mean, not for nothing. There is the simple fact that that sort of thing does actually have its uh, appeal. And it, quite frankly, it does in fact have its place. It can be inserted into places where it does not belong. And that can be problematic for a multitude of reasons. And also... If you infer a fan service scene, you know, like in the context of a story could be like accidentally dehumanizing to a uh, particular character, usually a female character. Goblin Slayer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Actually, Goblin Slayer is a really good example of this because um, that scene's not supposed to be sexy. That scene's supposed to be horrifying. Why did you frame the character's body like that? And framing is a very important part of this because it's like you can have intimate scenes that are sexually provocative but are still in character and you know for better or for worse in our western american culture sex is held to a certain pedestal a certain standard that makes it even simple nakedness is Mm -hmm. uh falls under that category it's worth noting as a manga podcast one big thing about manga and the reason why sexy fan service is so in my opinion, wearily prevalent. Like I don't, I don't actually consider myself that much of a prude. But like, the reason why compared it gets, to me, <laughs> uh, the reason why it gets, uh, why it can get tiresome for some people, myself included, is the cultural standard for both nakedness and sexuality is different in Japan than it is in the West. The East is just more comfortable with the human body and the mechanisms therein than the west is generally speaking so they're more inclined to make a joke like you mean some poor dragon (laughs) that kind of joke is told to you know middle schoolers and nobody bats an eye over there whereas here that's something that like someone will give you a questioning look if that's in material aimed at high schoolers which strictly speaking is what dragon ball is aimed at and and these are the pitfalls kind of of the of the sexy fan service uh it can be um immersion breaking for certain audiences it can be derailing in certain ways because you can be having a perfectly serious uh i I hesitate to say serious to say serious because sex scenes can be very serious uh and treated with an appropriate amount of gravitas. I like to think that I can write them like that. (laughs) (laughs) There's a level of it's designed to appeal to the audience member specifically. Mm -hmm. Um, Very rarely is a sex scene written in a way that isn't 
overtly stimulating for the audience member and not even just like a a sex scene because um this is slightly getting out of the uh manga space but this is actually a really good example of um a case where fan service of the sexy variety is it has the potential to actually directly undercut what you're going for and I'm going to get into the case where sexy fan service can actually work really well, like because there's a couple of different cases of that. In uh, Code Geass, um, the nightmares piloted by the uh, the Japanese faction use what's refer what in the fandom is referred to as a motorcycle seat or a bike seat. You're all thinking of the shots of Colin right now. Yes, exactly. The shots of Colin. And like when her boobs are literally dangling in your face and there's supposed to be a serious uh dramatic theme stating moment going on it's a little bit hard to take the moment seriously it cheapens the impact of anything said or done because here's this thing that's supposed to make the blow bits tingly like that's not supposed to be there that's getting in the way of what you're trying to do and and again that calls into question you know that gray area of like at what point is it immersion breaking because you don't just to hit the hammer on the head the female body is sexualized more than the male body is so it's like at what point does just a female character existing in a certain position constitute fan service at all but in the example that you're explicitly pointing out it's like well she's horizontal in a way that sticks her ass and tits out <laughs> yeah it, it's it's pretty overt to the point where i've actually watched a few scenes of code Geass with people uh you know who are seeing these scenes for the first time and it's actively distracting you know and i mean like it, i do think that it is kind of disappointing that there are cases where you know because like sexy fan service can indeed be used you know in a positive sense if, you know, and not even necessarily sex scenes in particular, but like just fan service in general, you know, if you have characters be around each other naked and it's just a normal scene to them, that speaks to a level of intimacy that they have with each other. Mm -hmm. The problem is it's almost never used that way. The eek slap is so so common and it does nothing for anybody 99% of the time um you know i mean like it has a it has a bad reputation for a reason it's abused and it's almost always there for the audience to the detriment of the narrative mm. and i think that's a that's an important factor to uh focus on cuz when fan service fails it fails because it it reminds you you're watching a a product that's being presented to you yeah, and we've been talking a lot about the sexy fan service in this regard, but there's also the other aspect that we uh, brought up, the fan kind of fan service, where it's it it also fits into the gray area of like, is are you just using Chekhov's gun? Are you just doing appropriate narrative building of calling back to things in order to close the loop? Yeah, I think I think for something to be fan service, fan fan service, good or bad, I think there has to be a level of this didn't need to be done. Mm -hmm. And and when I think of that, I think of like I hate to say it, but like moments in mecha anime and like Gundam and like <laughs> <laughs> where it's just ogling the thing that looks like the thing. <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah. Any any long running series, especially a case where it's long enough to have like branching universes, you'll mm-hmm. get situations where different versions of the story will call back to other different versions. And sometimes that can be really cool. Sometimes it can uh, facilitate a crowning moment of awesome, especially if it's unobtrusive. But what if you just have a tingling in your middle back? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you just murdered me. I'm sorry. (laughs) But that that does that is the question. It's like, at what point do you kind of dilute the original impact? And I think that's more a case of bad fan service like that. That's that dilution effect. If you do pull off the Chekhov's gun, closing the loop, the narrative satisfaction, then we don't call it fan service because that phrase has an inherently kind of negative connotation to it. But even even a good reference like the one that you mentioned uh, previously, like it doesn't it makes you smile it, like to some extent it reminds you that you're playing a game but it also doesn't take you out of the current experience like that's mm-hmm. sort of the thing fan service by its nature it's service for the fans it by its nature has a meta contextual co- component to it where it's playing to the audience in the way that a greek chorus would yeah like like when suleta uh fenced cool in the late stages of witch from mercury that had perfectly valid in-universe reasons to happen, but also the Gundam... It's a Gundam series. <laughs> the Gundam visit, I got to go, just like Amuro and Shar! <laughs> or all the other 30 billion people who have fenced. <laughs> exactly, exactly. You know, as a playing playing to a beloved trope is a kind of fan fan service. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's the thing we're waiting to see. Not to date the episode, but I just recently finished Baldur's Gate three, and there is a moment in the epilogue where um, one of the companions is talking to you about how, oh yeah, this uh, reunion party that we're having is really nice. We should do this more often. And one of the things is, man, coordinating a bunch of friends to have a regular meetup, that sounds impossible. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you, Online Spaces, for making that simpler <laughs> but that that be roll 20 or foundry or whatever exists in the future but that is also a form of fan service that is you know winking and nodding at the dungeons and dragons community that flocked to Baldur's gate 3 because it's a D game that that's a nothing line that no one would bother reacting to in the story none of the characters have any meaning or connection associated with that line of dialogue but we know that's a reference to meeting up to play the tabletop game Dungeons and Dragons that Baldur's Gate is based off of. You know, I think that's a pretty good example, uh, you know, where it's not intrusive, but it is service for the fans because it's like, you know, we're there too. We have trouble getting people to meet in person too, et cetera, et cetera. You know, there's a... Yeah, it's like it's like famously for this entire podcast, we don't play TTRPGs for the entire fourth quarter of the year. (laughs) Because life. And I think that's a good place to start uh, getting into like some specific examples of various uh, ways that fan service can be implemented for good or for ill. So we have talked a lot about like why you do fan service, what its benefits are, the drawbacks in some ways more than others. So uh, to talk about um, 
some uh, specific examples. We're going to start with the sexy fan service because it's the thing that you think about the most. It's like, I watch it for the plot. <laughs> I had a millennial moment of like agedness earlier today <laughs> when we were recording where I, I was like just flipping through some clips and I saw a streamer talking, explaining the I watch it for the plot to her viewers. <laughs> it's like you need to explain this to people there are people too young to understand that reference no <laughs> that that's bad for multiple reasons but <laughs> getting back to what we're talking about here um as much as we have kind of uh, exacerbated the negatives of sexy fan service there are good reasons to use it for a lot uh, and uh, let's highlight some specific examples here. Do you have any, Jake? Actually, believe it or not, I do. Much as I normally loathe this trope, it's mostly because of its overuse, not because of its lack of utility. I'm waiting for the Eden Zero reference. Uh, actually, that's going to be my second one, believe it or not, because uh, whilst I do think that it can be uh, a negative in this series, there's actually a good example of this in Fire Force. Ah, actually, that is that is a uh, very deep well to draw from. Uh, yeah, it. I believe it was actually from our first reading where Shinra, I almost lost his name because Shiki. Look, they both got the, the muscly, the same spiky hair pers- uh, silhouette going on. They're, they're the same dude. They really are. Um, and I love them. But yeah, um, Shinra, there's a there's a moment where he accidentally uh, walks in on uh, the sister bathing. And, you know, it's a fan service scene. It's showing a, a attractive female character in a state of undress. But whilst Shiki, ha- I mean, they both have a, a pretty immediate reaction to it. And one thing that it does for Shiki's character is um, there's a sort of archetypical shonen protagonist archetype. Um, and shiki's reaction to the scene is actually fairly mature like he turns away and he apologizes for it and he doesn't really you know freak out or overreact there's no projectile nosebleed or anything like or actually there might have been but like it wasn't emphasized like he he got over it quickly and um he wasn't master roshi about it yeah he wasn't master roshi he wasn't even cheeky about it you know like it establishes that he's he's a a habituated person who's been with people like he's not a hermit like someone like son goku who wouldn't understand why being naked is a problem you know like there there's a level of because there's a trope about prota- about shonen protagonists not knowing social cues he understands the social cues but he reacts with a level of maturity it also speaks to him being a little bit older than a lot of shonen protagonists cuz even though a lot of anime characters look the same, you know, look the same age, Jotaro. Uh, you know, he's like out of school, you know, so he's a little bit more put together than your average uh, shonen protag who's a hormonal teenager. And then the sister also reacts in a very similar way, which speaks to, again, her maturity. And then they're able to just have a conversation whilst in this state without it being weird and you know eventually they remember the state that one of them is in and they part and you know the the scene ends but it it speaks to the level of habituation that uh shinra has to being a relatively normal member of society which is an unusual trait a lot of shonen protagonists have a tendency to be some flavor of hermit who doesn't understand you know who who either doesn't 
understand why the female form in a state of undress is an issue or overreacts to it. Mm -hmm. Um, And it speaks to the uh, intimacy of their relationship. Like, you know, I mean, there's the potential ship there most certainly, but like, you know, immediately that they are at the very least closer than coworker friends. They've already made a connection because they're able to have at least a semi or because, you know, I mean like anybody accidentally walking into the situation is going to, it's going to be super awkward but it's also not like comedically over the top awkward, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, it it speaks to the degree to which they have gelled as uh, as friends more than coworkers, um, as they otherwise would be. Um, uh, and a similar thing uh, re- uh, relative to Eden Zero. One thing that's kind of interesting is that, despite how duplicitous and douchey he is, you never really question that Weiss is a member of the family. And one of the scenes that was my favorite from Eden Zero, one of the scenes that made me fall in love with the series, was the scene where Rebecca had just gotten out of the grip of a tentacle monster. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, uh, Weiss had been mocking her and, and making jokes about it. But then he gets grabbed by the tentacle monster in turn. <laughs> and Rebecca helps the tentacle monster undress him. <laughs> And like, there's no that, maliciousness just, in it. That's just a thing that they do because they're basically siblings at this point. You know, like not they're not squabbling like, siblings. Yeah, yeah. They have a they have squabbling sibling energy, but they're also not actually siblings just because of how comfortable they are with the untoward nature of the situation they're in. You know, like mm-hmm. it, it's that it's that sort of unique relationship of uh, you know, that level of found family where you know relationships are fraught intimate and intermixed and they, you know her like not even not even for her own sake but just to tease weiss li- starts lifting his shirt while he's being grabbed by the robot tentacles like there's there's just something so uh charming about the degree to what like because like rebecca would not do that to an enemy she wouldn't do it to a stranger ever wouldn't even think about it you know mm-hmm. Like, if that was uh, Labilia in that situation, Rebecca would not have done that, even though humiliating that thing is something that not only would she want to see happen, but Labilia deserves. But she wouldn't yeah. do that because that's not the kind of person she is and that's not the kind of relationship they have. It, it has a level of being informed by the character relationship that helps ground this inherently sexual moment still in the universe and helps alleviate that thing that we were talking about where it's like in, you know, a more prudish Western sense uh, thinking that storytelling and sexuality need to be entirely divorced. That sort of thing is part of the human condition. Not for nothing, you know, this is supposed to be examples of cases where it's done well, but like, oh, actually, holy crap, we haven't done this on the podcast, but there is a manga that actually does this whole thing super freaking well, and it just occurred to me, we're going to have to do this someday. Okay, hit me up. There's a series called Tsubasa, Those With Wings. You've talked about this before. One to, of to me individually, right? <laughs> not not on the podcast. One of the um really important aspects of um the main character's journey is her coming to terms with her own sexuality. She is 
she's in a bit of a state of arrested development, but definitively out of, you know, childhood. She's not a teenager anymore. She's like, you know, 20-ish. And she has a very serious, very intimate, very romantic relationship with the deuteragonist of the series. And one of the crowning moments of awesome in the series is it's just one panel, but there's a sex scene between them and it's uh, near the end of the series. It's a very character affirming moment for her because there have been a lot of cases where, uh, you know, identity uh, is a important aspect in that series. Um, you know, uh, orphans don't have last names and therefore aren't considered full people. And she's an orphan. She doesn't have a last name. You know, there's a level of asserting her personhood by having this sexual relationship with, I mean, her boyfriend, that's, that's what their relationship is. You know, it's like, mm. you know, like there, there's a level of like, we're, we're throwing off the ambiguity. They're a couple. There's no question here. And it's, it's like, it's the sort of situation where you would expect a reciprocal intimate relationship. And like the best freaking part about the scene where it happens is, this is just so freaking cute. Uh, almost to the extent where I don't want to spoil it. So maybe, maybe skip a, a couple of seconds ahead, but the scene has ended and they're like, you know, under like the cover of bed sheets to, you know, keep it, you know, good for standards and practices and all. Um, yeah, the, the classic morning after pose. And she she has a request for her boyfriend and she like shamefully whispers it uh, that she wants to do that again. <laughs> he asked her to make a request of him. And like there, there's a bit where he he sort of chuckles is like, no, it's supposed to be something that you want to do. And she's like, but I do want to do that again. <laughs> like, it's so cute. Cause it's that's, like, it's like, she's so precious. Like she's, she's like asserting like that. She's a person and an adult and can make her own decisions. And that, you know, the things that have been said about her and other characters like her are wrong. It's, it's a really cool moment that uses, you know, a, and it's, it honestly, it's more beautiful than sexy, but like it is, it is like titillating in a sense, a really cool moment that actually, you know, I was going to say, I'd like to see more cases where, you know, sexuality is actually used in a positive way for the story. And that's a uh, Tsubasa, those with wings. There's a series that is just Tsubasa. That's why I'm saying the whole title, by the way, mm -hmm. that's different from that. But uh, Tsubasa, those with wings is a really good example of where like they just have a full on like it's again it's one panel but it's like a full page spread it's they have a uh, on panel sex scene and it is a uh crowning moment for a character yeah a, a moment where the character healthily understands their own wants and desires and boundaries mhm mm and and that's important that's something that should be represented it could afford to be represented more often because it's a thing that can be very difficult in the real world for people who haven't really been exposed to these sorts of things too often uh sex in media can appear transactional and you know not to uh spit on you know like sex workers in any regard but like there is a sort of power dynamic at play in a lot of sex represented in media where it's non-consensual to one degree or another and that is the sort of or thing it's either non-consensual or conditional or conditional. Yeah. And that's unhealthy. Uh, and yet it can be represented as the norm. And that's the problem. And I mean, not for nothing, but like those sorts of things being addressed in media, media is an 
excellent place to deal with some very, very like serious subject matter like that. I'm a huge proponent of using fiction as a safe space to to explore you know like extreme emotions like you know matt will rag on me in some episodes of like oh sam you don't like feeling bad when you're reading it (laughs) i I get where he's coming from he's razzing me because he loves but it's not totally untrue but (laughs) (laughs) shut up (laughs) hey i'm there with you exactly but it's like there is a legitimate and very important place to using media as a way of exploring emotions that would otherwise be unsafe to approach in real life. And that can give you a greater understanding of yourself. One of the examples I always think about is actually from uh, Dan Olson, uh, Folding Ideas on YouTube. He talked about a dating sim that he played that left him... Lady killer in a bind. Yep. Left him with a legitimate sense of like uh, betrayal for days. And it was a fictional scenario in a video game and while that is unpleasant it's important to think about and the inverse is something pleasant is important to think about like what do you want and the scene that uh jake cited as an example is a great example of that Mm -hmm. and sort of in a similar vein my example for what a good uh example of sexy fan service is is Actually, from the Fate series. So, one of the like deep lore things about Fate is that it. Oh no! It it started as a visual novel of like this idea of, and and this this might be apocryphal. I don't know how true this is. I just want to get this out right now. This is just something I heard from my friend Heinel. I know you listen to the show, <laughs> <laughs> but um. It's like it was this idea of, you know, you summon these heroes from stories past and, you know, you fight for your wishes with them. And the original creator, his friend told him, basically, sex sells. Can you fuck King Arthur? Because, you know, you made Saber this sexy woman. Can you fuck her? (laughs) Mm. And, you know, there's these out of place, very raunchy sex scenes in, you know, mana transfer via <laughs> ejaculation <laughs> in the visual novel. And that's a part of the series that's kind of been hard for a lot of fans to reconcile with, you know, all the other things talked about based on my experience in the community. But watching the Fate Stay Night anime and particularly Fate Apocrypha, It treats the sexual intimate nature of summoners and servants in a much more gentle manner because Shiro and Saber never have sex to transfer mana. In Fate Stay Night, it's a sort of sanitized, talked around, you know, oh, Shiro and Rin both slept on the same cot, but they were fully clothed the whole time. But, you know, they needed that skin contact to transfer mana. So Fate Stain Night's not a magnificent example, but Fate Apocrypha, I think, is pretty good because that has two gender nonconforming characters in uh, Mordred and Astolfo. Uh, Mordred, you know, son of uh, Arthur, is physically a woman but will only ever respond to he, him pronouns, uh, refers to himself as a man, as a son, 
and will attack you if you refer to him as a woman. And then uh, Astolfo has very feminine presenting qualities, you know, the long braided hair, uh, the dressing in a skirt and all that. And then suddenly there's an episode where Astolfo's getting out of the shower and, you know, no titties and uh, <laughs> eyes of one of the characters just trace down to right about where the waist begins to form the shape of a male pelvis and then cuts away. <laughs> and like, despite this, all of the characters present, like it's a, it's a shock for the character who's first seeing Astolfo as a man. <laughs> <laughs> but after the initial shock, it's like Astolfo is accepted like this. Mordred is accepted as he is. And it becomes this sort of very natural acceptance of the characters of their what they assign their gender to be, despite their physical sex. I really like that example because I think that's I think that's a uh, shining example of the way that traditional sexy fan service can be used really well. Because um, I'm not sure it is that when the audience learns that information about Astolfo. Yes, that is all. That is also when the audience learns that. That is so cool. It's a moment of dramatic irony if you already know, but if you right. don't already know, that's actually really cool because. Anyone who's into the male form is going to get any audience member who's into the male form is going to get, you know, that kind of enjoyment out of it, which is the reason it's there. But also it's not taking you out of the story because it's giving you critical information uh, to it's giving critical information both to the characters and other characters within the story. Mm hmm. Like that's that's a really genius way of throwing in a little bit of raunchy fun, but still, you know, making it, uh, you know, making it enhance the story rather than detract from it. Yeah, Fate Apocrypha, surprisingly trans in a, in way more ways than I talked about just now. <laughs> <laughs> Available on Netflix, I think. Neat. <laughs> At this point, I don't know. Mm, that's where knows. I watched it like five years ago. <laughs> Streaming streaming services are a wasteland of sorrows, just like old TV was. Uh, the more Did things go change. To streaming services to escape old TV. The more things change, the more they stay the same. Uh, anyway, let's talk about some bad examples of sexy fan service. Uh, we're, we're rife with them. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I've got a good example. Almost every single time ever, 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 where there's any form of fan service in a fight scene. I almost broke up with my first girlfriend because of Rosario and Vampire. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Um, you know, I mean, nothing, nothing takes away from the drama and stakes of a life or death fight like uh, Jiggle Physics. I'm sorry. Um, I mean, not for nothing. And this is something that um, the other members of the pod pushed back on at the time. But I hold by this. In a very uh, dramatic, emotional, and climactic battle between uh, Riza and uh, Denji in Chainsaw Man, there was a pretty overt upskirt shot that I really didn't like. Mm -hmm. And like, yes, like... I, I stand by that not being the worst example. It's not the worst example by any but means. Like, but I, I, I know what you're getting at. It, it dragged me out of the scene instantaneously because there were so many different camera angles you could have gone at. And I never would have noticed, but it was specifically framed in a way that you could see up her skirt to kind and of like, flash her panties. Yeah. And like, you know, I mean, like it, it's not egregious, but like 
it bothered me. It took me out of the moment, you know? And I mean, like, not for nothing, it's a, that's a sexy character. I'm not, like, against the idea of seeing more of her, as it were. It's just in that moment that didn't belong. And it's very, very hard in a fight scene to justify any kind of, uh, you know, sexualizing content. Um, and you know, this is another case where, uh, boy, the, uh, the ladies out there, boy, you've got us so much worse than us fellas do, uh, cause it is almost always women, uh, bikini armor is thankfully kind of dying, uh, and it should stay that way. <laughs> oh my gosh. But being an MMO junkie in the early two thousands was a great time for my early libido, but <laughs> maybe not the best for my emotional development. <laughs> <laughs> I learned things about myself. <laughs> titty armor very nice to look at but <laughs> it's it, it's bad for a lot of reasons not the healthiest thing to be a fan of you know there's actually another funny one um and you know i mean like this is a bit of a you know uh cards on the table open uh thing um where um one thing like it was it was a case of sexy fan service utterly ruining a scene uh, and once I start talking about it, it's going to be uh, like, like you're going to know exactly what I'm talking about instantaneously. Funny thing is, um, you know, it's like I have my preferences for, you know, fan service or indeed for more extreme stuff. And, you know, there, there's the thing. It's like, is what I'm into make me a bad person? And then I saw don't, this. Don't talk to me about that. <laughs> <laughs> well then i saw the scene in sword art online you already know what i'm talking about <laughs> yeah uh boy talk about uh making something uh like sexy for the audience in a way that like is just god how how, how did it happen um for those of you who are blissfully unaware um, in the second season of Sword Art Online, the female protagonist is literally chained to the ceiling and actually sexually assaulted on screen. I, like, there's no other way of putting it. Like, that's what happens. Um, you know, it's not, it's not like, um, you know, oh, it, it went up. No, it, it, it was full-on sexual assault on screen. And... It was framed in a way to show off uh, the female character Asuna's body. And it was so revolting, I literally could not watch the scene. I could barely listen to it. In fact, it went on for so interminably long, I actually had to skip ahead in the streaming service I was watching it on because I could not stand it. That is easily the most extreme example of uh, sexy fan service being bad that i can think of because i've never been more revolted by media but it did also it did also teach me a thing of you know because i mean i i hadn't really deeply considered the places to put fan service before that point but the the degree to which it angered me at an existential level it made me realize boy the framing and the intent of the actual story, because like Sword Art Online is supposed to be a drama, mm. is what it's supposed to be. So like, if something like that happens in a, in a drama, you'd better goddamn well take it super freaking seriously. If it's an etchy, on the other hand, you're kind of there for the softcore porn. And that... Again, Rosario and Vampire. <laughs> but it's like, 
in in a case like that or even more extreme like there's a there's a lifting of taboo because the goal of it is different from you know like say uh you know a uh you know, just think of a random manga that isn't explicitly an ecchi uh and you know like uh there's there's so much that eden zero gets away with i mean the scene i talked about is the good example of uh sexy fan service with Whis. that in a different series would be utterly Horrific. disgusting and make rebecca an unlikable miserable awful character irredeemable forever but because eden zero is popcorn and candy until it's not <laughs> we'll get we'll get to that episode eventually jake but like you know because it it doesn't take itself like it doesn't take itself seriously uh you know from a meta contextual sense to such a degree it it lightens the standards of what you can get away with you know a character being subjected to you know, I mean, like, it, it's sort of funny because, boy, howdy, does Dragon Ball skirt that line. And I do mean OG Dragon Ball. Does it skirt that line all the way till it starts getting serious with Piccolo? Boma, your balls. <laughs> and it's like, the only reason why I don't loathe Master Roshi is because of the time period in which he was introduced. <laughs> because, like, Roshi, Roshi in the context of modern Dragon Ball should not exist and you'll note he's a lot less pervy than he used to be isn't he uh-huh while it's not as egregious in compared to the one that you cited jake my example of bad sexy fan service hits me a lot more personally because i'm going after my child with this one tengen topa gurren lagan the show that unironically like forged a part of my like life's philosophy like okay that's that's cringe that's edgy i don't give a shit <laughs> i stayed up until 3 a.m for like most of a summer vacation watching this show in parts like one two three four on youtube of each individual episode because that, that was the day it was in. That was the day it was in. I was that dragged into it. I talked about it with my friends, and they talked about the dub that they saw on the sci-fi channel. There is one moment that just kind of takes all of the moments that you kind of have to blink past when you're watching it from a serious perspective and shoves them and, like, punches you in the nose with them. And that's specifically in the Lagan Hen movie, because like the the Gurren Lagan movies, Gurren Hen and Lagan Hen are, you know, season one and season two condensed into movies with some extra scenes uh, for, you know, big cinematic flair. Right. I don't know if you've seen them, Jake. If I did, it was only once in eons ago. Yeah. So the Super Tengen Topa Gurren Lagan, you know, the big swirling spiral energy form of Kamina. That's fighting the anti-spiral. That's from Lagan Hen. And that is at this like triumphant moment. You know, it's when Lord Genome goes and he absorbs all the energy and, you know, gives all the power to Simone and they combine all, all this stuff, all this like culmination of all the themes of the series. And all the characters in their like super avatar forms are buck ass naked. You know, Simone's mm. Simone's got his whole chest showing. Uh, he's got his, you know, arms and his abs. 
uh, Yoko and Nia have, you know, their tits out, flopping on screen, nipples and everything. And I understand artistic nudity. That's not something I'm, like, against or prudish about. But the problem is, Gurren Lagann spends an awful lot of time, especially early on, doing the sexy fan service thing. You know, mm. uh, the obvious examples being, like, uh, Yoko Yoko's is, outfit. <laughs> y- Yoko's in a bikini and short shorts the entire time. Uh, we have um, the Kitan sisters, uh, particularly the eldest with her massive bazongas. And even from a non-feminine uh, presenting perspective, Simone and Kamina constantly are just showing chests and abs. Like, it's a very sexual series in that regard. It's, it's almost as if it's like some kind of coming-of-age story or something. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And But it constantly is playing at that. It's hammering at that. For God's sake, the most iconic weapon is a drill. You can't get more phallic. Yeah. And so you take this crowning moment of awesome, the culmination of the entire series, the moment where everything is supposed to come together and defeat the final bad guy, the ultimate refutation of the anti-spiral's philosophy, this life-affirming moment, and just boobs wobbling in the screen. <laughs> yeah, and I think I think the the problem there isn't even necessarily the characters being naked. It's the it, there's the jiggle physics. Like they don't need to do that. And and this is the this is the problem where it's like I don't want to come off as prude. I don't want to say that like displaying the naked human body is a bad thing. But taken in the taken in the totality of the of the series it feels out of place if you had never seen Gurren Lagann before and you were just shown the final battle of Lagann Hen it would feel out of place it's yeah, I like think... this whole series is a, is a coming of age story it's about maturing and we have the we have this very immature just wobbling the lady bits on the on the screen. And I feel so bad saying it because I'm I'm attacking my baby and I'm also I also feel like a prude. Yeah, and, and I think I think you actually hit the nail on the head there because it's the it's the degree of maturity with which the human form is being presented in that scene there is a level of immaturity to the way the bodies are being shown they're not adults affirming their identity as human beings those bodies are there to you know make the make the blow bits tingly (laughs) you know it's it's the like like, it's the goal nia and yoko are like saying these really profound bits of the overarching speech it's like i've bet everything on the on the greatness of the human spirit we humans had someone much greater than us and for their sake we'll keep moving forward you know i say that i say these things and it's it's distracting yeah it's distracting it it, and like again it's like it's it's because it's not it's not the human body as like an like it, it's not like the platonic ideal of the human body in the same way that like the um oh god who is the uh renaissance thinker who did the form of man drawing Michael, that everyone Michelangelo? uses yeah yeah it's not like the michelangelo like platonic idea of the human form which is what that scene is doing it's 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 an anime sexy character you know it's it's this it it is inherently Leonardo, the sexiness that's the problem 
Da Vinci did the Vitruvian it's, it's Man. I was wrong. <laughs> but yeah, no, it's it's the. I mean, again, it comes down to framing, you know, because mm. it's like them being naked isn't even inherently the problem. It's the way in which they're naked, as it were. And like Yoko and Nia are the most obvious examples, but like Simone is also kind of like that. Like he's just he's this hugely muscle-bound super masculine figure it's it's sexual in that regard but also from just like a boy's perspective it's like you see simone like that this is the apex of masculinity this is gar Mm. and that can be aspirational but it can also be distracting it's like do i need to be like that to be this heroic figure in my mind does the aesthetic, like the degree to which the aesthetic matters to the idea? Mm-hmm. Gurren Lagann's really good, and I love it, but it's got a lot of problems. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look, look, if you can't point out the flaws in something, do you really love it? <laughs> exactly. Before we get to the next bit, I have to use the restroom, actually. Uh, so, anything else to discuss about good and bad examples of sexy fan service? No, I think we, uh, we covered it, and, uh, Maybe uh, in, in a uh, fan servicey way, exposed a little bit about ourselves. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I, I'm sure. I'm sure you won't tell anyone, dear listener. Of course not. I'm not saying I don't appreciate spiral energy form Simone and Yoko and Nia, but <laughs> <laughs> uh, we'll stay in the in the negative zone for a little bit here, so we can end on a positive note. But Getting into fan fan service, what are some bad examples that come to your mind, Jake? I have a tendency to squint past these in, in most cases. There are things like, um, you know, the uh, the tournament of power from uh, Dragon Ball Super, and actually a lot of a lot of even the good parts of Dragon Ball Super can have this sort of thing where uh, it kind of feels like the series is responding to the fans, not for nothing, but like. 17 shooting the one character out of a transformation sequence and everybody yelling at him for it. That's a hundred percent a reference to uh why do we let them transform uh criticism that's been lobbed at Dragon Ball that like it's like I too- feel like we should be stopping this. Nah, I want a good fight. Yeah, and it's like my dudes, it's two panels in the manga. The anime extended the transformations massively. It's the reason why it seems like they don't stop people from transforming. They're usually uh diegetically in the manga like half a second <laughs> you know and it, like um you know that's a case where it's like we're we're winking and nudging to the fans and accidentally validating a bad faith criticism that dragon ball has been saddled with for years mm-hmm. you know any, anytime you have a long-running series uh you know i mean one thing that i thought it was a uh clever and cute aspect but was uh informed otherwise by the uh, bleach fans the the bit in uh burn the witch where they explicitly set it in the bleach universe and it's like yeah that's cool and it doesn't bother me because i don't know bleach but apparently it has lore implications that are hard to square it's cool that they did that and it makes me want to read bleach but does it have negative consequences for the story for making that connection when it didn't have to be? Mm-hmm. Because Burn the Witch very easily could have stood on its own completely separate from Bleach. Yeah, and and that's most often the problem with this sort of like fan fan service. It's 
calling back to something in a way that makes the original thing you got you gotta think about it too hard because i won't lie a lot of my favorite media sort of relies on hard suspension of disbelief why did that work thank you it's cool <laughs> rule rule of cool is a valid answer uh in in it's some cases depending on what specific story you're talking about it's what's kept me loving warcraft despite everything blizzard has done <laughs> uh that's my first example of bad fan i, I want to put humongous air quotes on this because i don't think it's bad i think it is Weak, perhaps weak yes and i'm gonna sound so sacrilegious for this but the boo bits from dragon ball z abridged mm. and i i i feel so bad saying it because it's not weak it's them calling back to their old stuff because this is the hypothetical of what the boo series would have been it's them doing little little tidbits for totally not mark i mean not for nothing but one really cool moment from that is uh ultimate gohan going up to super boo oh what's wrong little boy do you need an adult no no i am an adult and that's one of the things i'm talking about because like i know that uh totally not mark and uh team four stars uh fans the Venn diagram is mostly a circle, but it's not a perfect circle. So, like, what if you're a TNM fan who hadn't watched DBZA and saw that in the Boo review? That's going to mean nothing to you. It means nothing to you. It's a total non sequitur. And, um, and while, while it's extremely powerful for you and me as long-standing DBZA fans who saw the first I Am an Adult back on Namek fucking <laughs> 10 years ago. Oh, God, stop. <laughs> I won't. It it's it's it it's a little weak. It's, and and that's one of the like the trade-offs that you get doing this sort of fan fan service thing. Cause it does close the loop, it does fire Chekhov's gun. But if you've been going on long enough, can you guarantee that your audience has seen everything that makes it poignant? Listen to me, Kakarot, I'm using his fing name. If you if you haven't been experiencing TFS Vegeta calling Curl on the bald one for 15 years then that doesn't mean anything. Mm -hmm. And, you know, here, here's another funny thing where, you know, and I mean, like, this is, this actually kind of applies to Dragon Ball itself, like, proper. Um, and, you know, certain series which should just, you know, stop, please. Um, you know, when you get, um, you get fan service moments because, um, you know, Ultimate Gohan in general, but even that really cool scene where Gohan finally inverts the I am an adult bit, there is something of a cheapening factor of his ascension at the end of DBZA proper. Mm -hmm. Like, he's already had this moment. You know, it, it makes him going Super Saiyan 2 and... You peaked. Yeah, it, you know, it, it kind of cheapens that moment by that existing... Um, you know, I mean, I, I know that's one of the biggest criticisms of the Dragon Ball Super Superhero movie, where it's like, it's it's just it's just Super Saiyan 2 Gohan again. With um, the previous cell form, like, come on. <laughs> but like, you know, it, like, that's fan service, and it's like, okay, cool, but you did this. Um, mm -hmm. You know, and I mean, um, another, uh, another example, we sort of mentioned this briefly, and it's not so much of a problem in the Gundam manga we actually read, Gundam Crossbone, 
uh, or at least not the first Crossbone, because there's multiple Crossbone manga series. Um, but like, there are a number of UC uh, Gundam uh, manga that will like Gundam leave the One Year War, please. <laughs> I'm pretty sure we have covered all 365 days of the One Year War from both the Federation and the Zeonic perspective. Both in space and on Earth. <laughs> um, you know, and it's like, you know, you'll get these cases where, um, you know, you get, um, like, like there are good examples of um, old mobile suits showing up again. Um, uh, this has been adapted into manga, so it's still technically on topic, but, like, in Unicorn, you have a case where um, a uh, Federation base is being attacked by Sleeves Remnants, and they're using one-year war mobile suits because it's what they have access to. Okay, that makes sense. They're getting trashed, you know? And then, um, in uh, Double Zeta, there's also an example of one-year war mobile suits that have been refitted, actually being able to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the Gundam team. Um, but, like, man, there's stuff in, like, between Crossbone and Victory Gundam where one-year war mobile suits or mobile suits that look like them. Like, the entire Oldsmobile army. Um, they're a Xeon Remnant group that went to Mars. And they come back, and, like, they exist as a gigantic nostalgia trip. They make their current top-of-the-line mobile suits look like one-year war Xeon mobile suits, and the same with their warships. And it's like, we've seen this. You know, you're, you're drawing on imagery for the sake of drawing on imagery. You know, that's, that's where a lot of bad examples of fan-fan service uh, come from, and when the reference where, doesn't mean anything. And that's where my actually bad example comes from. Because again, the boo bits, I don't want to call them actually bad. I want to call they're them... They're really good and really funny. <laughs> they're really good, they're really funny, but they are very heavily reliant on you having seen the last 15 years of Team Four Star content. I'm sorry if I made you feel old, you are. <laughs> but the thing that I think of as an actually bad fan service example in this regard is totally off base from a manga perspective, but the entire Warlords of Draenor expansion from World of Warcraft. <laughs> I will die mad about this expansion. <laughs> But uh, over echo chamber, indeed, <laughs> one of the worst parts, because God, I am dating myself so hard. But if you've played Warcraft three, <laughs> yes, the game that is 19 years old at this point. <laughs> but if you've played Warcraft three, then, you know, the moment where Gromhell scream kills Magtheridan, he kills the big demon, he frees his people. And in his final dying breath, he says, I have freed myself. And Thrall is like, no, brother, you freed us all. And that's big. That's impactful. You've played through three RTS games of the horde fighting the influence of the demons. Warlords of Draenor starts with a pre-expansion cinematic of recreating shot for shot that fight, except Grom survives. And then makes Grom the bad guy for the entire expansion. And then expects us to suddenly accept that he has done a heel face turn in a trailer for the final raid. 
and then thinks that we're supposed to feel good when at the at the end of the final raid, after you beat the big bad guy, he goes, Draenor is free! It's like, you were on a genocide campaign 10 minutes ago. Why should we trust this? The fact that you referenced it makes it worse. Exactly. And that's the thing that kills me about that entire expansion, because it's nothing but calling back to the Burning Crusade expansion and and old Warcraft lore, because uh, we use time travel to make an alternate timeline, guys. It's not canon. Don't worry about it. And and that's just bad fan service on, on set to 11. It's using in universe justifications to make things that air quotes the people liked happen again. Mm hmm. Treading water. It did inadvertently end up setting up the best expansion in the, in the game, but that doesn't absolve it of its sins. Yeah, as its own standalone thing. It doesn't help that they basically forgot about everything except Gul'dan. Like, oh, hey, we created an alternative timeline, so we have Gul'dan alive again. Cool, we'll just make him the big bad guy. But what about everybody else on alternative Draenor? What about him? Yeah, a lot of times when this sort of fan service stumbles, it it comes from a place of um, this is what's going to sell because it's a recognizable thing. Uh, Sequelitis does mm. this. Uh huh. I mean, in in a big way, um, I think because uh, it's like Boruto's dad was <laughs> a popular manga back in the way way before back times. Back in the long ago when you and I were doing hand signs on the middle school playground. Oh, God. <laughs> I know to some extent Boruto has actually been able to make it work because, I mean, it's lasted quite a long time and it's still I believe it's still going strong, Um, you know, but like from what I've seen, strong might be a stretch, but it is still going. <laughs> it is still going, you know, but it's like there there's a level of um, you can kind of feel that this is capitalizing on a popular thing mm -hmm. as opposed to it understands what works about it you know it's it's using a name without understanding what makes it worth caring about you know mm -hmm. i mean anything that gets referenced as a like for the fans kind of reference is something that has to be special to people and a large number of people too so yeah. Again, to date the episode, uh, Risk of Rain Returns, uh, Coalescence, on, off the soundtrack of that, that is potent and powerful to the fans of the franchise. I know I'm leaving you in the dust on that one, Jake. But <laughs> <laughs> like, like, it's a good uh, way of testing uh, the degree to which the creators are invested in a thing. Um, mm -hmm. Bad fan fan service is a really um, telltale sign that the people working on this are doing it for a paycheck because they know that the fans are going to eat it up. Um, a lot of bad anime movies that have been on No Read November <laughs> fall into this category, Full Metal oh, Alchemist. Oh, God, don't even talk to me about that. <laughs> Man, can, can you believe? No, I can't believe literally any of it. <laughs> but yeah, whereas um, if you get a really good fan reference, that is an that is a near guarantee that the people working on the project love the thing as much as you do. 
ironically enough, my good example is actually, <laughs> well, one of the two is from World of Warcraft Legion, the expansion immediately following Warlords of Draenor, because Illidan's entire storyline really feels like it's written by somebody who deeply cares for the character and wants to call back to the important moments for him. Because not only do they successfully resolve a lot of the lingering plot points from the last time he showed up in the canon, but they do it in ways that make the character feel cool, not like a Gary Stew, <laughs> mostly. I, I have, as much as I love the rejection of the gift cutscene, I have a few issues with him just lasering Jesus to death. Well, you know. After you beat Kill Jaden, and he opens up the portal to Argus, and he goes, sometimes the hand of fate must be forced. I'm like, I remember that cutscene from Warcraft 3. <laughs> and it, it's, a, it's a series of just playing Illidan's best hits over and over and over again, but in a way that it feels like it's advancing not only his story, but the story of the world. And I think that's the best way that you can do a, a fan service moment in this regard, where you not only call back to the moment where the character was at their A game, but you then take them to their S game. Mm. Oh, I got a I got an amazing example that is exactly in that vein. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to confuse everybody now when I say Dragon Ball Xenoverse 2. OK, now I'm confused. So, there is a scene in Dragon Ball Xenoverse 2. It's a sequence in the, like, Future Trunks timeline whilst Future Gohan is still alive. Uh, uh, the worst timeline. <laughs> Objectively. This was before the Goku Black arc happened, okay? Still the worst. You, I, I, I do not stand eh. corrected. Yeah, you're not wrong. <laughs> Because of shenanigans in the game story that are convoluted and not important, uh, Trunks and the player avatar character are speaking to future Gohan after, you know, the gameplay shenanigans have happened. And Trunks, in a moment of weakness, says that, because uh, this is the battle that is supposed to, like, Gohan is supposed to go off and fight uh, number 17 and number 18 and die. And Trunks says... This time I can change it. I'll go with you. And a line that's just genuinely heartbreaking. And boy, does Eric Vale pull it off. This time I won't hold you back. It is such an emotional scene. And then um, the Supreme Kai of Time, like, immediately cuts in and speaks to your character and says, you can't do that. You have to stop him. If Trunks, if you do that, you'll change history. And then referring to your character, you have to stop him. Which mm -hmm. is, you know, like, you know, uh, shout out to the animators who did the physical animating on the uh, silent protagonist uh, and their understandable, understandably uh, concerned reaction to this, right? Man, all roads lead back to Azeroth because <laughs> the Caverns of Time uh, dungeons are built around the idea of making sure that key moments in history happen the way they're supposed to. <laughs> Even when they're the most tragic that's ever occurred. This scene in Xenoverse 2 actually gets even better. Mm -hmm. so, uh, so, like, this is future Gohan. And, you know, like, he, he's overhearing most of this, right? Mm -hmm. And it's pretty overt that 
he knows what's going on. He clues into what's going on. And he turns to Trunks and he says, if you're here, it means that Bulma was able to complete her time machine. That must mean the future is safe, right? Ooh. Man, that is such a freaking cool moment. You know, that that version of Gohan was never going to win, you know? there Too much had happened. He, you know, he lost too much. He was too far behind. This is not where my story ends. This is where Gohan's story ends. <laughs> but like, you know, like, but funny like, as that joke is, it's also true. It's not where his story ends because Trunks is who he is because of you know, this alternate timeline version of Gohan and his future, assuming you ignore Super's existence, is safe because that Trunks did become strong enough to protect that that version of Earth. We don't we don't talk about Super's version of future Trunks. We don't talk about Super generally, latest mm-hmm. at all. Um, and then the, the scene ends with... Um, future Gohan motioning to uh, the player character and says, uh, he says the future is safe, isn't it? That means that this battle has a real purpose and it looks like you've made a good friend. You can't leave a good friend behind, can you? And like, man, it's just, it's just such a good scene. It, it makes me, it makes me think about the original context of it, you know, cause it's like, it, you so, know, and- and and that is the hallmark of a good of a good use of one of these scenes. Mm. It it makes you think about the thing you're nostalgic about in a new lens. It doesn't just go, "Hey, remember this." It goes, "Hey, remember this," and now think about it this way. Yeah, it, it it's one of those ones where it's like thinking about like future Gohan. It's like, what would the timeline have been like had future Gohan lived? You know, it's like, would he have gone back in time? You know, like, how would how would things have changed? The good examples that we have are a lot of, like, you know, timeline shenanigans, but, like, makes you think about what-ifs, makes you think about the story in a new context, and only, like, that version of Gohan is different from the version of Gohan that, you know, we're familiar with, you know? And it makes you understand the character a little bit more complexly. You know, mm-hmm. it... It references the original scene, but it adds to its own scene and on its own is a good scene, you know, and like this can even be the case for, um, you know, smaller references uh, going back to a manga that we've actually read um, a, a cool bit of um, it, it's sort of like, you know, mech nerd fan service of um, the enemies that the Crossbone Vanguard are fighting the mobile suits they're using. They don't look quite like the Zanskare Empire's mobile suits, but mm-hmm. they're close. You start to see certain aspects of Zanskare mobile suits, like the way that the uh, camera sensors are on these sort of like bulbous insect eye-looking things, um, whereas the rest of the, uh, you know, most of the mobile suit looks like a then-modern mobile suit. It's a, it's a clever little bit of retroactive, you know, I, I don't know if this is the right way of putting it, but like retroactive foreshadowing of like, here's the, here's the connective tissue. Where did, where did this design came, come from? It came from this other group. Speaking of narrative elements that are uh, very hit or miss, <laughs> doing something that hadn't been mentioned before, but it's actually foreshadowing to a previous thing. <laughs> The, that is a coin flip between oh you're a genius and oh you're a hack yeah 
Again, it, it's one of those ones where it's like the, the the two pieces are you need the love and passion of the people making that scene, you know, mm-hmm. whether it be writing or whether it be art or whether it be animation, whatever media it may be. Um, you need the um, you need the love and the passion of a fan to think of something small, you know, whether it be calling back to a grand moment or just a fun little quirky bit. And then you also need the skill and craft of uh, making the scene work in the context of does it work as its own or uh, does it work as its own scene or reference? Does it like call back to something meaningful? And does the callback like enhance the thing being called back to? Uh, for a bit of a blurst example, <laughs> um, like I said, I, and because I can't stand the Roma manga to save my life, despite the this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I, I mentioned, I just had, uh, finished Baldur's Gate three. Um, I know that, and for my, uh, history with that franchise, I played 45 minutes of Baldur's Gate one before the 3.5 mechanics made me want to tear my hair out. (laughs) (laughs) And I have very long hair. That would have been very painful. (laughs) But, um, I do know that one of the characters that shows up as a villain in BG three is a playable or like recruitable companion character in Baldur's Gate 1 and 2. And from what I've seen from fan perspectives, her like in goodening romance arc is one of the most intricate and well-written parts of the entire canon. However, that's very difficult to accomplish in game and it had already been canonized by Wizards of the Coast that she had her bad end in Baldur's Gate 1 and 2, therefore making her a villain for 3. And I know there's a lot of fans of Baldur's Gate 1 and 2 that are mad about this. And that becomes that moment of, you know, sort of blurst fan service. It's like, oh, we're, we're calling back to Viconia Devere. She's evil. But like in my Baldur's Gate 1 and 2 gameplays, I did everything right to make her good. Why is this happening? Oh yeah, uh video games uh that uh the ending of the previous game being multiple choice. Mm-hmm. Uh you know. And I mean, uh I know uh you know even- like Dark Souls 3 referencing Dark Souls uh 2 because it's like it's set in the same location as Dark Souls 1 but it also references Dark Souls 2 so is Drang Lake the same place or is it a different place does it still exist or does it not <laughs> That's a good for- example. Yeah, and even for BG3 like it's basically a direct sequel to the uh Descent into Avernus uh module for Dungeons and Dragons 5th edition which is a multiple choice ending, but Baldur's Gate 3 basically says, whatever ending you chose for Descent into Avernus, uh, it's one of the ones where Zariel stays an archdevil. Fallout series, there are a lot of bad endings, and almost always the bad ending is not the canon one. It, it can't be because that irrevocably changes the world. Um, so it's like, if you want to reference what came before, you have to soft canonize an ending. Uh, Elder Scrolls is in the same place. Yeah, which is hilarious for Elder Scrolls because uh, ES2 had so many endings that they soft canonized all of them. Isn't it like the isn't it like the tears of a dragon now or something? Because no matter what, ending ES2 involves activating the Numindium, 
it causes a dragon break, which is basically you turn on a mecha so powerful it breaks the linear flow of time. So every ending happened at once. <laughs> Even the mutually exclusive ones. Even the mutually exclusive ones. And like that's something that Elder Scrolls can do because it's inherently a wonky Hyperborean bullshit rules universe. It's a little bit harder with things like Fallout or Baldur's Gate or Gundam, where you're dealing with... Hi, Gundam Thunderbolt. <laughs> where you're dealing with very concrete timelines. <laughs> Hi, Mobile Suit Gundam The Origin, which we may do at some point. I really, I really like the animation. I really like Char, but I understand the problems. <laughs> oh, God, the gun tanks existing before the Zaku is an interesting... It's an interesting choice. It's hilarious that we decided to end this on good examples and we got back to bad ones. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, thank you everybody once again for tuning into the Overmanga cast. <laughs> oh. As always, you can find us on all of your social medias where we are at Overmanga cast, Facebook, Twitter, at X, Instagram, it's called right now. Spotify, the places. One place that is at least seems constant, uh, sort of, is YouTube, where you can like, comment, and subscribe. You can uh, comment on our uh, episodes there. Uh, the episodes go up on a two-week delay, uh, so you can head over to overmangacast.com where there's also a comment feature. Uh, give us some uh, examples of uh, series that have both good and bad fan service uh, so that we could uh, praise or rage at them, uh, uh, whichever uh, gets more click-through. Indeed, and make sure to tune in next Thursday where we are going to be diving deep into another uh, manga or comic book or something, and we'll see you then. Good night, everybody. Good night, everybody. Okay, so if I can rant about uh, the Warcraft timeline for another 20 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Only 20. I can go longer if you want. <laughs>